0: Whether you're listening live or throughout the week, thanks for making us part of your day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Revelation. And we thank you for the last few weeks in which Pastor Mel has done a beautiful job helping us see Revelation as an art gallery. And everywhere we turn, we see another incredible picture one after another. But within these pictures, there are images and ideas that are difficult to understand. So give us eyes to see. Give us minds to embrace what's taking place and give us hearts and hands to respond in a way that brings you glory. God, may my words fall down so that your words would be lifted up and we might know you more effectively and serve you more faithfully because of the words in Revelation. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. I can't breathe. For eight minutes and 46 seconds, a white cop kneeled on the neck of a black man, eventually killing him. The last words of George Floyd's life went something like this. My stomach hurts. My neck hurts. Everything hurts. They're going to kill me. In a world transfixed with a deadly virus in North America, we had a three to four week reprieve in which we were talking about other things of great importance. Marches, protests, even riots were organized to bring attention to racial inequality, systemic racism, and Black Lives Matter. We cry out with the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 1, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. We demand justice for George Floyd. We demand change for racial inequality. We demand people listen to the minority voice. While well, these are good things, there's always more to the story. One of my closest friends works for law enforcement and about a week after this took place, I was able to have coffee with him and I said, what's going on in the cop shop? And he said, we're absolutely disgusted by what took place. Nobody condones that act. But he goes, we're also afraid of what's going to happen. What does this mean for cops all across North America? Police officers demand justice. I cannot begin to fathom the financial difficulties shop owners must be having at this time. The government tells them to shut down their businesses, resulting in a loss of income. Two months later, riots take place, destroying their storefronts. In Minneapolis alone, 1,500 buildings were damaged, resulting in estimated damages of $150 million. That doesn't include contents. Small business owners need justice. Bringing it even closer to home. You cry out for justice when you're unfairly dismissed from work. When your spouse is physically or verbally abusive. When your parked car was damaged in a hit and run. When your child was sexually abused. When your neighbor is a total jerk. When your contractor did terrible work. When you're certain your teacher treats you less fairly than the others. When your sales rep rips you off. When your family has completely disowned you. When your client never pays their bills. Even if you've forgiven them, you cry out with Habakkuk, How long, O Lord, must I cry out for help? And you do not listen. In other words, God, do something. At least five times in scriptures, we read the words that are found in Romans 5, verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay says the Lord. What if we are surprised by judgment? What if it doesn't look like what we expect? What if our prayers are really making a difference? If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Revelation is the very last book. We started our series going through Revelation one chapter at a time, beginning with the incredible picture of who Jesus is and what he looks like in chapter ones, going through the seven churches in chapters two and three. And then I so appreciated what Mel did with that imagery of the art gallery in chapters four, five, six, and seven, giving us different pictures of what's taking place. Today, we're going to pick up the pace a little, and we're going to cover four chapters in 30 minutes. I'll save the big idea until the end, but if you like following along, I've provided an outline. Chapter 8 starts with this, the prayers of the saints. This is Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 to 6. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. There's been a lot of activity that's taken place so far in the first seven chapters. In the opening chapter, we see this beautiful picture of Jesus in his incredible splendor, power, and strength. Chapters two and three are seven Letters written to seven different churches. Then we're taken into a throne room. We're taken to seven seals. We're given the picture of all the saints of every tribe, nation, language, and tongue gathering together to worship God. And we're only scratching the surface. Then everything stops. For half an hour, 30 minutes, there is silence in heaven. We're given this picture of God sitting on his throne. Arrayed before him, seven angels holding the seven trumpets. While in silence, another angel takes a censer to the altar, pours it on top of the altar. And we are told that it is the prayers of the saints mixed with incense becoming a great fragrant incense um, smell unto God. I love what it says in verse 4. The smoke of incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hands. My friends, think about this God silences heaven so he can listen to our prayers. When we cry out to him for justice, the God of the universe, the one who is all knowing, all loving, all present, all powerful, says, Stop. The saints are praying. When we cry out for justice, when we cry out for healing, when we cry out for vengeance, God hears us. Do you believe that's true? However, you're listening to this message, wherever you are, whatever's going on in your mind at this exact moment, do you actually believe God hears your prayers? The reason I like Habakkuk's prayer so much isn't just because of the words he says, but you can feel that agony. You can feel that plea going up before heaven. How long, O Lord, must I cry out before anything happens? God, if you don't intervene, we have no hope. One of my favorite quotes on prayer comes from a man by the name of Walter Wink, and this is what he says The phoning etiquette of unctuous prayer is utterly foreign to the Bible. Biblical prayer is impertinent, persistent, it's shameless, it's more like haggling in an Oriental bazaar than the polite monologues of the church. My friends, plead your prayers before God. He's listening. He's about to take action. Certainly the angels expect him to. There's a word here in verse two that I find really interesting. If you look at it, you'll see it says, and I saw the seven angels. Almost like we're expected to know who they are. If I saw this in heaven, I probably would have just simply written, and I saw seven angels and nobody would blink an eye. But John puts in the word the in our Protestant Bible, we have 66 books and only two angels are mentioned by name, Gabriel and Michael. But I grew up in a Catholic school. They have extra books the, uh, in their Bible. And there's seven angels that are mentioned. Beyond Gabriel and Michael, we have the names Raquel, Uriel, Raphael, Serial, and Remiel. They're all waiting to blow their trumpets. The second part of our outline then is what happens when those trumpets are blown. And judgment comes on the world. As I read the next few verses, listen closely and see if you can pick out the vast similarities between the four trumpets in a well-known Old Testament story. This is Revelation 8 verses 7 to 12. The first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky. On a third of the rivers and on the springs of water, the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sea was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. Were you able to pick up those Old Testament connections? If you're sitting with friends or family members, look at them quickly and say, this is the story I think it's referring to. If you're by yourself, text somebody really quick. What Old Testament story does this remind you of? For those of you who said the plagues of Egypt, congratulations. The first trumpet, which was the eighth plague to hit Egypt, we read about in Exodus chapter 9, verse 25. Throughout Egypt, hail fell, struck everything in the fields, both men and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The second and third trumpets talk about how blood. How the waters became blood and completely undrinkable, which was Moses' first show of strength to the people of Egypt with the first plague. The fourth trumpet struck down a third of the sun, the moon, the stars, which obscured light for part of the day and part of the night, which resembles the ninth plague that took place in Egypt. Do you remember Pharaoh's response after each of these plagues? The scriptures say something like this. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he refused to let the Israelites go. So how do you think the world around us responds when judgment takes place? They continue to harden their hearts, dig in their heels, and refuse to worship God. As we walk through the scriptures, there are a number of reasons why trumpets are blown. One of the reasons is to call a holy assembly. All of Israel's people are gathered together. The trumpet is blown and it's a moment to listen to the high priest or Israel's spokesperson. Another reason a trumpet is blown is to talk about the inauguration of a king. Where everybody again assembles together and to see a new king be named for all of Israel or all of Judah. And while this certainly happens time and time again, it is not the most regular occurrence. The main reason the trumpets are blown are to warn people and to prepare them for war. To prepare the people of Israel, there is going to be upcoming difficulty. Get ready for battle. Get ready for a fight. Get ready because life as you know it is going to change at least for a period of time. Throughout the reading of these first trumpets, we hear this constant refrain of the third. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the sea turned to blood. A third of the creatures and a third of the ships were destroyed. A third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars. You get the point. God is restraining his wrath on all of humanity while giving them time to repent. He's showing them his judgment. He's showing them his power. But he's also saying, I want you to see how powerful I am. I want you to see what I'm capable of doing. Use this time to come back and realize that I am the God that you are called to worship. We can even see the progression that takes place with the four trumpets. He starts with the earth and food supplies. Then it expands to sea and all the commerce and the drinking water. And finally, light. With each warning, it keeps getting more and more ominous. But the people never repent. Of the ten plagues that hit Egypt, I think some of the plagues stand out more than others. Depending on how familiar you are with the book of the Bible, you can probably start saying, Oh yeah, there was, there was gnats, and uh, there was some death of some livestock, and there was some frogs and flies and things of that sort. But I think some of the plagues stand out more than others. Certainly the very first plague where Moses turns the Nile into blood. We remember that. We remember the darkness. There's two other plagues that absolutely stand out to me and maybe to you as well. A plague of locusts coming and destroying all the fields of Egypt. And certainly the 10th and final plague where the oldest born male is killed want to guess what happens in plagues in Trumpets 6 and 7? Locusts and death. But here's what's disturbing. As overwhelming as a plague of locusts might be, as disturbing as an angel of death might be, the picture in Revelation is so much worse than that. It's like the pit of hell is being opened up and there's a demonic horde going to attack the world. If the people of the earth want to worship destruction, God is saying, if that's what you want, in just a moment, I'm going to read Revelation chapter 9, verses 7 to 11. I want you to listen for how many times we read the word like. John cannot even begin to describe the horrors of these demonic beasts. He can only somewhat compare them to something we've already seen. Revelation 9, 7 to 11. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had his king over them, the angel of the abyss, who is known in Hebrew as Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon those who are rebellious towards God are unable to face the demonic, unable to face the unbelievable pain the demonic horde brought on them. For five months, these locusts came and it's so bad, God would not even allow people to die, but had to experience this pain. Then the sixth trumpet is blown. And a battling horde of demons comes and starts killing a third of the inhabitants of the earth. Every time Jesus offers repentance, they reject his offer and prefer to follow Satan. Which leads us to an important point. Judgment alone won't bring people to repentance. Judgment alone won't bring people to repentance We pray for judgment. God brings judgment. But it didn't lead Pharaoh to repent thousands of years earlier. And it's not helping people to repent at the time that this is going to take place. When I was learning how to evangelize and one of my things was, hey, don't do that horrible sin. It's going to lead you to hell. That didn't exactly lead people to salvation. It's the same thing here. Judgment alone won't bring people to repentance. We need something more. We need a faithful witness. It's the third part of our outline. Placed between the sixth and the seventh trumpets, just like between the seals that Mel talked about last week, is an interlude. God is patiently delaying his full and final wrath so that people will come to believe in him. Chapter 10 is this interlude given to John. Then I, John, saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head and face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. and He gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up. What the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound the trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more, go. Take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it, eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. And when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. The scroll will be given to John to proclaim the completeness of the communication process. God himself has written in the scroll. Jesus has undone the seven seals of the scroll, handed it to the angel who gave it to John, who opens it and reads it for the churches. Even in how the angel delivers the scroll is powerful, one foot on land, one foot not in the water, but on the water, with his right hand raised to God. In this is a picture, a delivered oath, in which all three spheres of the created order are brought together land, earth, and uh, (laughs) sky, and sea. Then, as John eats the scroll, he finds it sweet to the taste, but turns his stomach sour. Here's what I believe that means. The word of God is great news, but also the occasion of offense. The Scriptures are absolutely clear that sex is beautiful, and then they go on to saying should be shared between a husband and a wife in the marriage covenant alone. Our culture looks at that and says, "Well, that's archaic." Do people actually believe and follow that? The scriptures are absolutely clear that Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, rose from the dead three days later, and is one day coming back. And culture looks at that and says, are you sure? Maybe heaven exists, maybe it doesn't, but even if it does, I'm sure there's plenty of ways to get there. And the more we study the scriptures, the more counter-cultural it becomes. John is told to eat the scroll. He tastes it, and it is good. And then when it gets to his stomach, he realizes, oh my, I have to tell the world all around me what it is that God wants them to hear. And that's just uncomfortable. Chapter 11, 1 to 6 gives us a picture of what that looks like. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it was given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. There are two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to To harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. They have power to turn the waters into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Commentators disagree. Does this mean two literal witnesses, or does this mean the church? For those who hold to a literal interpretation, the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. Moses, who turns the waters into blood. Elijah, who prayed and the heavens held back their reign for three and a half years. The people who hold to this interpretation believe that these two men have done miracles before. They can do them again. These two men believe Elijah and Moses were on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jewish history proclaims that they will come back again. With a 24-hour news cycle, the world could easily see and watch everything that's taking place almost in real time. Others believe the two witnesses refer to the church. John has already talked about the lampstand and has used that to symbolize the church. The olive tree, perhaps the Holy Spirit feeding into the church and empowering it to be the witness that God has called them to be. poised to bring the good news of the gospel to every corner of the earth. Whatever the future holds, the end result is the same. The whole world will hear about Jesus. It sounds like we're on the cusp of victory, which makes the next few verses even more astonishing. This is verses 7 to 10. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them, overpower them, and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them, will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. They're just killed? Nothing prepares us for this jarring statement. But we read in Ephesians 6 verse 12, these words, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of uh, of evil in the heavenly realms. What humanity was unable to do to stand against these two witnesses, some sort of demonic power accomplishes with ease. The people of the city don't even bury the witnesses. They just allow them to lie there on the street as people walk by and mock them. If this seems harsh to our 21st century ears, it wasn't at all out of the unusual for the first century listeners to this word. In 73 BC, Roman slaves had had enough of being treated unfairly, and they thought that they would gather together and start a revolt. All said and done, about 120,000 slaves and people came together to form a sort of militia. They quickly overcame some of the weaker military um, fronts that they would face, and Rome started to think, wait a second, this isn't just a few farmers with pitchforks. These people pose a threat. And so the Roman Senate got together and said, let us send eight legions of our finest trained men. 40,000 Roman infantry and cavalry went to go against the slave uprising and absolutely demolished them. 6,000 slaves crucified on the 200 kilometers of road coming out of the city of Rome. The meaning, don't you dare stand against the power of Rome. And so the people in this great city looked upon these two witnesses, whether a literal two people or the church, and said, stupid Christians, you thought something was going to happen? You thought you could stand against the great forces of who we are? Ain't gonna happen. We're not even gonna give you the respect of burying you. But one astonishing event leads to another. Chapter 11, verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck all who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Many questioned the resurrection of Jesus. No one is questioning the resurrection of these two witnesses. And mockery turns to marvel. Take another look at verse 13 because this is absolutely amazing. I'll tell you why in just a moment. At that hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The book of Revelation is filled with analogy and allusion to the Old Testament. And here's what's taking place. In Isaiah 6, verse 13, God saves 10%. In Amos 5, verse 3, God saves 10%. And in 1 Kings 19, verse 18, God saves 7,000 people. In Revelation 11, God reverses all of that. It's not the 10% that are saved. It's the 90% that are saved. It's not the 7,000 that are saved. It's 63,000 that are saved. Because of two witnesses, the entire city comes to repentance. And here, my friends, is the big idea. Through judgment and through witness, Jesus is triumphant. Our world sees the power of judgment. Our world sees the power of witness. Our world sees the power of the resurrection. And they join in worshiping Jesus. Jesus Christ our Savior saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We are hostage by hope knowing God hears our prayers. We are hostage by hope knowing the faithful witness makes a difference. We are hostage by hope knowing that Jesus will reign victorious. We are hostage by hope knowing that through judgment and through witness, Jesus is triumphant. My friends, study the scriptures for it is incredibly sweet. And know that we are to be those witnesses to go out into the world and tell them the good news of Jesus, making him famous wherever we live so that the entire world might hear this good news. For the time is coming when that seventh angel will blow his his trumpet. There will be a loud voice from heaven which says the kingdom of the world as it become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. Father, I thank you for the book of Revelation. I thank you that we are hostaged by hope, and I thank you that your son Jesus will reign triumphant. Fill us with your spirit to be great witnesses for the rest of our lives, telling people the good news of Jesus and seeing them come to faith in you. We pray this in your powerful name, amen.